Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of In the Spirit of Horse. My name is Mosey Truitt, and this week on the show, I'm really excited to dive into this episode that is just filled with so much information. This week, I talked to Kathy from Intrinsen. You might know her from Instagram or her free online um, workbooks, or not workbooks, but ebooks. Um, She's just incredible. The work that Intrinsen does is just fantastic. And this week, we really dive into the training. We talk about how Kathy first got into this new style of horsemanship that is really focused on movement science as well as motivational science. And honestly, just overall horse magic. (laughs) I know she's she's so um, down to earth. But I really see what she does is just like amazing horse magic wrapped in science. (laughs) But really, she talks about how everyone can do this and how you don't have to be, uh, you know, some kind of guru in order to really unlock your horse's uh, potential to be a badass, really, and to be fully horse and to express themselves in this really authentic and incredible way. So I would definitely recommend if you haven't checked her out online, check out some of her photos first, like see, see some of the work that they do with horses and the movements and life they get out of their horses. Um, because it's just incredible. So if you want to see a little bit of what she does, definitely check her out on Instagram. Um, and there's links in the show notes, but yeah, overall in this episode, Oh, we just dive into so many things. It's hard for me to even explain uh, <laughs> all of the topics that we get into, but we talk a lot about movement and a lot about what it means for the horse to be fully themselves and express themselves really authentically through their movements and how we can help unlock that in the horses in our lives. And she gives some really practical information that you can actually bring out to your horse today. So this was an awesome episode to film. I'm just in love with all they do and uh, in love with Kathy, I think. just it, it was amazing talking to her. Yeah, I'm just so excited to share it with you guys. So let's just get on in. zone you're off the the washington coast is that where you are yes we're in the san juan islands so just you know north of seattle sort of right right next to canada that's amazing that must be so dreamy it's very dreamy it's it's amazing it's uh there's this concept called the rain shadow and all the like the really Arctic weather that comes in, it first has to pass over literally a rainforest in uh, in Washington, and it hits there before it gets here. So we have this incredibly mild weather. I mean, oh. it's a little bit cooler than when I lived in Santa Cruz, California, where we came from, <laughs> and about the same amount of rain. I mean, it's just, it's spectacular. Oh my gosh, how did you find that? How did you find out about it? 
Uh, well, actually, one of our old uh, co-authors from a long time ago, she was always talking about the San Juan Islands, and I had no interest in living on an island. It didn't appeal to me. And so it took years for my husband to talk me into even coming <laughs> up here. And we'd been looking for property for the horses, you know, something much better than what we were able to do in California. We just didn't have the the finances to be able to have a big space that the horses could move. Well, you know what California property is uh, like. Yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely <laughs> crazy. And so we knew, you know, that you can get a lot more acreage up here, but uh, I just wasn't interested. And then we started looking around for several years and we just couldn't find anything that we could agree on. And I finally just gave up. And at the very last moment, my husband said, let's just, let's just try this, this island that, that our friend lived on. And I just said, no, but if you want to go, go ahead. And so he, he went up and it was the only time that we didn't go together. And he, you know, after again, looking for farms for years and he went up and he started sending me back these photos. And so it was really the craziest thing because I, I agreed basically my life's entire life savings <laughs> to buy this farm and I had never actually seen it. <laughs> wow. The photos must've been really good. <laughs> And it was, and when I got here, it was, I couldn't believe that it was even better than, than I was expecting. Oh my gosh. It looks, it, it honestly, like, I didn't even realize it was in like on the West coast. Um, it, it looks so amazing. And oh, how did, what were you looking for in a farm? I'm just like very curious, like, because I know you're so, um, like you have all the Icelandic horses and yes. um, wanted, I think, a lifestyle, or at least I've kind of gathered from the things you've said, like a lifestyle for them that uh, really promotes their natural uh, movement and lifestyle. And so what were you looking for? Well, and that was our our goal has always been we want a space for the horses first and humans is really a very, very, very low second, and <laughs> which, which was very interesting to try to convince realtors that yeah. what your priorities were, and they would be all about the house, right? And we're like, well, but can you ride on the driveway? Can you go fast? Is it yeah. safe footing? <laughs> and you know how much usable acreage is there for the horses? And uh, so we were constantly trying to because we were searching you know, out of state. I mean, in locations that we couldn't actually visit, we had to depend on these realtors to have this sort of horse friendly you know, feeling yeah. and we would try to educate them. And then on this Island, we actually ended up finding a realtor that was a horse person. So awesome. she was like, Oh, you don't have to say anything else. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and she did it. Um, I mean, so we were really looking for just lots and lots and lots of space but with some diversity yeah I mean, we had pretty we had some high criteria in that sense we had very low criteria on oh it needs to have a barn and stalls and all of that because the weather isn't very extreme so all we needed was shelters mm -hmm. and um and we were moving in we moved last december so we've been here almost a year so we knew that we would need some sort of shelter but you know we weren't looking for like a fancy stable it was really about pastures diversity so we kind of got everything we have some forest here not a lot i mean it's, it's it's still 30 acres but the 30 acres is all usable and 
we kept wondering, you know, this place is so incredible. It's really a dream farm. It has, I think, I don't know, like 10 buildings um, that you can put, you know, horse stuff in and horses. (laughs) And um, we kept saying, why, why is this place not selling? And they said, well, because it's kind of a small house. (laughs) (laughs) That's perfect. (laughs) That's perfect. It's all about the horses. So yeah, they have, um, they have a lot of diversity. There's, um, there's some hills, which is also really important to us. You've probably heard me talk about that. We're, yeah. We want diversity of terrain, you know, not just not just flat ground. Um, we want to have as much um, interesting things that can challenge the horses as we can get. And so we got we got most of what we want here. We can see the ocean, but we can't actually get to the ocean from here. That's probably you know the only thing it's missing. <laughs> it's beach access. <laughs> um oh man I I actually I want to visit so badly because it sounds and looks amazing and please 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 come (laughs) I would love and please come here oh my gosh we should totally do uh back and forth slumber parties with our horses absolutely (laughs) (laughs) I was actually looking when we were looking for property um for kind of the exact same thing where I like cared so little about the house so, so little and just wanted <laughs> land, but also didn't want like a farm that was fully fenced already and like fully, you know, like with paddocks everywhere and like 40 stalled barn. Cause I was like, I'm just not going to use it. Um, right. so looking for a place that was like set up for horses so that there was like water troughs and there were, yes. you know, some yes. perimeter things, but not like a full horse farm. And I, I didn't have any idea how we were going to find that. Uh, and then we did. And um, yeah, I, I can't, I, I can't believe that you did. I mean, no, knowing where you are and how difficult that is in Cal anywhere in California, really. But yeah, it, I was so amazed that you found this place. <laughs> so great. It, it was so crazy. It was one of those things where I just, I, I like had a vision in my head of the ideal thing I wanted with it being like a small house, like set up for horses, but not like fully decked out where we could change the fencing. I could redo the whole layout. Um, I even was like, I would love it to be against like a mountain, but you know, that's crazy. It's not going to be against a mountain. Cause I also want some, I don't want it to be just mountainous. And I had like this right. crazy dream and did not in any way think we were going to get something close to it. And in the back of my head too, I was like, and then I would love to open a wild horse sanctuary, but you know, that's not going to be able to be on the same piece of property. Cause it just won't be big enough. And then like all these circumstances ended up pointing me to this place and it was kind of run down. So it was perfect because we could like fix it up to be what we wanted it to be. And yeah, when I saw it, I like started crying because I just couldn't believe that it was like the image I was looking for. Isn't that so amazing? I mean, it, you know, I waited my whole much longer than you life for this and it was, it was worth the wait. I mean, it, it's just, and from the moment the horses got, I mean, it was a, like a 24 hour transport for the horses. And we brought 10 horses here at the time. And from the moment they got off the trailer, it was just instantly obvious that they were like, oh, this is, this is it. This is home. Aww. And, you know, I would say within a few days, I was seeing the horses move better than I had seen them move, you know, maybe ever. It was, and they suddenly had just so much open space and that, you know, that gave them just the, the natural environment gave them this motivation to move. And oh, it was just, I was so grateful 
and you know suddenly it was worth all of the you know yeah. <laughs> it was very painful and difficult of course to do the move but yeah. um and not to mention seeing you know every penny you've ever made in your life but it was like all <laughs> worth it just to see their first gallop in the hayfield which they weren't supposed to be in but the fencing <laughs> wasn't quite right <laughs> yeah oh actually that's really funny cuz i just i had to bring my horses up um because we had to evacuate from a fire so it was sooner than i thought and that ended up being such a blessing because the fencing wasn't done and they just I just let them loose on the property and they just started running around and it was the most blissful moment and it changed so much for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it really, it's, it's everything. Um, and I, I think I've heard you talk about this too, what you're doing, um, which is kind of what we've done and, and what we did in California. It's just that it was on such a tiny scale where we want the horses to have their full run as much as possible of the property. Yeah. And so instead we just fence off the areas that, that are not safe for them. Instead of fencing them in, we just fence dangerous things, you know, out. Oh my God. So, yes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, like the, the UPS and FedEx delivery trucks are very confused all the time because <laughs> there'll be like strange fences across the driveway and horses just out. You know. <laughs> oh my God. I love that. That was always my dream was, I was like, how do I fence in? Yeah. Like the, the human structures and let the horses have everything else. And I yep. love that you're doing that. Oh my gosh. That's so great. <laughs> it's it's just so much fun. <laughs> um, I feel like it's the new the new way to, to house horses is to fence in, you know, there's like paddock paradise and there's all these different like systems people like to use. And this one is just fence off the humans and let yeah, the horses exactly. have everything. <laughs> we're the people in the little cage. And yeah. They're, they're free. <laughs> and we're the ones that are more comfortable in the little cage, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, speaking of that with movement, because we've kind of been talking about how, you know, that changed your horse's movement so quickly, just like having a new space. I'd really love to, I guess, first have you introduce yourself and, and tell us what, um, what it is you do and, and then maybe go into like movement and motivation science, which you are uh, yeah, so awesome. well versed in. <laughs> awesome. Um, yeah. Okay. So I'm Kathy Sierra. And uh, I'm a co-founder of um, Intrinsen, which was my partnership with Steiner um, Sigurd Bjornsson. And, uh, well, it, my university degree was in kinesiology, which was human movement. So for uh, the first 10 years of my career after college, that was my profession. I was in the human movement profession. I worked at these huge sports medicine facilities in Los Angeles. We had sort of the best of everything that you could possibly imagine. And, but you know, I mean, I'm old. This was in the 1980s and early 90s. And it became obvious to me that something we were doing was just horribly wrong. That it was an era where everything was about fitness. And because I got lucky enough to work in these fantastic facilities, we had literally the best equipment that money could buy. And the best training equipment, the best strength training equipment, everything was about perfect biomechanics, um, doing everything in the most correct way. We had this huge ratio for you know staff to participants. So everybody had the best care, the best attention. I had 100 trainers working for me. And 
you know, one day I realized that about half of my trainers at any given time were injured, some of them with casts. And we had all of these people doing the best possible things at the time. And yet they were very fit. I mean, unbelievably fit. They all looked like models and they were broken. Hmm. And I became so disheartened by that and thought, wow, if this is as good as it gets and this is what's happening, then I just need to rethink everything, you know, all the choices that I made about the, this profession that I wanted to go into. And I just, uh, I just walked away from it completely wow. and, and didn't look back. Um, I, I mean, I, I couldn't even bring myself to go into a facility after that. And I changed professions, went into computer science because I thought, well, at least I'm not going to hurt anybody. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, you know, how I spent my time after that. That was my, you know, my other profession. And then I'd, I'd always had horses on and off throughout my whole life, ever since I was a child. Um, you know, had a few long years without them when I was first had kids and stuff. But mostly I'd had horses on and off. And I you know, I wouldn't say I ever got very good, good at it. Um, and somehow, uh, I don't know, I guess maybe in about 1999, I actually first picked up a clicker and started reading a little bit about clicker training with horses. I didn't have a dog, so I wasn't training any other animals. And I had this young quarter horse and I just started playing around and I thought, wow, this is amazing. And, um, but again, it wasn't like I got very good at it. And, uh, and then I got much more seriously back into horses. And then my husband who had also had horses when he was a child, he got back into the horse bug and we stumbled on Icelandic horses. And, you know, that was it for us. We were just, <laughs> we, we were, we were hooked. And next thing we know, you know, we have a horse farm. So, uh, but the first inkling of what happened and, and how I got back into movement science eventually, I came all the way back to my original profession, was when we first got Icelandic horses, and of course we're in the United States, and the very first clinic I went to was a, a master Icelandic trainer, and um, people were joking with him, about half the people there, including me, that we had these horses that weren't, uh, I don't know how to say this, but at the time we would describe it as lazy, you know, just mm -hmm. not very motivated to move. And we were all asking him what they do in Iceland. And he said very seriously, we don't have that problem in Iceland. I don't know how to help you. Hmm. <laughs> and, you know, one woman laughed and said, well, that's because you call the herd. You know, you, you wouldn't actually keep those horses in Iceland or those are the ones you sell to the Americans or, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a nervous laugh. But then many of us realized that uh, most of us, like basically all of the horses here except one, w were born in Iceland. So these are horses that weren't like that in Iceland. But then they came here and suddenly something big was missing. And some people actually started to take this seriously and say, well, w what's missing? Uh, you know, is it something in the water? You know, <laughs> what, what are we doing? And we just assumed, well, you know, it's... We just don't have the training practices. And many people who live in other areas where they have a lot more terrain and open space for the horses 
who sort of believe in what I'll call the Icelandic tradition of raising horses. Um, well, you know, Icelandic horses are kept mostly wild for five years at a minimum. Um, I mean, they're often brought in for a little bit of, you know, exposure and maybe a tiny bit of training, maybe at age four. Uh, but mostly they're started um, much later than most horses. And they're out free ranging on massive, massive parts of the island. Um, in fact, there's a big roundup every year because so many horses are that have different owners are all out together in these wild spaces. That's amazing. And the very first time I went to Iceland, I was, you know, we were, my husband and I are driving down the road and we just, you know, horses are everywhere. And we just see these horses out moving, just sort of trotting down the road. And I looked at them and I thought, wow, this must be a fancy competition barn. Look at the way those horses are moving. And, and <laughs> our taxi driver, who, of course, also had competition horses, he said, oh, no, that, that's those are just horses. <laughs> and I thought. I've never seen my horses move like this, including the ones that were very well-bred. And I just couldn't believe it. And he said, well, that's how they all move. They just, you know, it's like, in fact, those aren't even very good horses. And I just thought, what, what is it? You know, and now, I, of course, I think it's really silly that I didn't see the most obvious thing of all, which is the environment afforded that kind of movement and motivation for the horses. Mm -hmm. And we didn't have that. And then the next time I went to Island, uh, Iceland, which was in, in the spring, I was, we were staying at a little cottage and there were horses behind it in a fence. And I went out to see them and they were out there walking around and playing. And I couldn't walk to them because the, it was a grass covered lava fields was so treacherous <laughs> that I thought I'm going to break my leg. There is, there's actually no physical way I can even walk out to the fence line and there they are. And I thought, this is, this is insane. I, I don't, I can't even comprehend how they're able to move like that. And then a lot of things started to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. And after that, I started to take it much more seriously. And then I, I, when I first started working with Stenar, he would always talk about this sort of magical, mystical, Icelandic thing, you know, and it sounded very woo to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> you may appreciate this. I'm I, one of the reasons I love you is because you are a, definitely more woo than than me. I'm pretty anti-woo. <laughs> but Stenar, you know, here he is. He's bringing crystals into the barn, you know, and I'm yeah. like, this is hilarious, because <laughs> you know, I'm like, no, it's all about science. <laughs> um, which is I think, why we made a good, a good pair on this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he would, so he talked about it like it was this deep spiritual thing, but he kept talking about the nature and the horse's connection to nature. But then the more I started to look at what was happening, I kind of got this feeling like there's a deep connection to movement here. And I just reactivated, you know, <laughs> the old me. And I thought, well, I'll just go back and take some, courses again and you know refresh some certifications and and when I did this, this was a few years ago about three years ago and I I saw that wow the movement profession had changed so dramatically that very little of even met any of the experience that I had and and it turned out that just as I was getting out of it there were people at the very beginning 
um, people who had, you know, stood up at the same conferences that I used to speak at, who were standing up and saying, guess what, everybody, we had it wrong. <laughs> and we were breaking people. And we need to really look at this. And here's the research. And, and you know, this was like 25 years ago. And it took a long time, I guess, for that to sort of start filtering its way into the human movement profession. Mm -hmm. And there's still a big divide um, in the human movement world, but it's much more accepted in the human movement world now that uh, there is this whole completely and fundamentally different way of thinking about movement. That's almost the opposite of where we were when I was there. And so I had my whole world turned upside down and then suddenly I could look at the things that Stainer was doing intuitively. And, and Stainer, he grew up in really, I think, the, the, you know, probably the, the, the greatest horse family in Iceland. His dad has won, like, everything imaginable, still holds world records. It's um, his, his entire family were professional trainers. They had, I think, something like 3,000 horses. And so that's all he's ever known and is the Icelandic horse in the, in the, you know, the, the best possible situations. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I realized that so much of what he was doing was exactly described by movement science. Um, now, the other piece of this is that um, before that happened, when uh, shortly after I got into computer science, and because I was still in Los Angeles, I ended up working in the... Um, computer game design world. And that's where I really fell into motivation science. Oh, yes. Oh, my gosh. And then eventually I ended up teaching that at UCLA um, and at Universal Studios, this, you know, how to create um, motivational game experiences. And so I, I had that, you know, that was a path that I was on for several years. And so suddenly all of the pieces started to merged together instead of saying, well, we have motivation over here and then we have movement over here and then we have learning over here. Mm -hmm. Suddenly all of those pieces were, uh, you know, deeply intertwined. And I realized that I needed to look at all of them together. And, and then, like I said, now it sort of starts to become really obvious. <laughs> you know, like Stainer would really laugh at me and think, well, how, how did you not see this as the most obvious thing? How could it have been otherwise, right? But of course, <laughs> we don't. And in the United States, especially, you know, horse culture is really, well, it's very fractured. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have natural horsemanship and then you have a lot of dressage and classical um, influence, everything must be done in a very specific and quote, correct way. There are all these different um, disciplines with different approaches. And then there's, you know, behaviorism and how you're actually teaching the horse to do something. And when you sort of dust all of that away and just wipe the slate clean, you look at what does it really mean to be alive? <laughs> And in many ways, it's so much simpler than we all tried to make it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, and then you just see it when the horses start to come alive. And aliveness is a word that Stanner would use with me all the time. And I didn't understand what he meant by that. He would just say, well, the horses need to just be alive. <laughs> I'm like, what does that even mean? <laughs> and, you know, how do I operationalize that, you know, and, and then once you realize that 
you know, movement, motivation, aliveness, these are nature. These are all, these are all the same thing. These are all connected. You can't try to separate them. And, uh, and that gets back to, well, how do the horses spend their day? Not the training we do. What is their life like? Because we can't, we can't influence them in just that 45 minutes or an hour. Mm-hmm. And you've probably seen the, you know, the human movement stuff. Like you, you've probably seen this, you know, your chair is killing you, right? Mm-hmm. City is the new smoking. It's there's, there's a, I mean, and these things are actually legit. Um, so there, there's this huge push about um, the way that you do things in the rest of your life has a much more profound impact on your longevity, not just the quality of your life, but how long you're going to live. And they, the, the scary part of this, well, it makes sense now, but the scary part of this was that they found that just doing really great workout one hour a day was not a protection. That didn't protect you from a sedentary life. It didn't matter how great your workout was, how hardcore, how much you, you know, <laughs> kicked ass at it. That was not a protection. It was the getting up and down all throughout the day. It was all those other things that we wouldn't even consider exercise. It was about, you know, moving your DNA. And, um, and yet, you know, this is exactly what we're doing with horses that we're, we're thinking in terms of what we do within that one hour. And I would always say, it's not the one hour, it's the other 23 hours that makes all of the difference in their life. Mm -hmm. Everything you just said, I'm like, Uh, I'm like sitting here like thrilled (laughs) because it's, I think that, um, it's really interesting to me to see like the different ways people kind of come to similar conclusions and the difference between like you connecting everything and all of this being so cohesive and, you know, whether it was your early career in movement, um, is it movement theory, movement science, movement science? Yeah, movement science. Um, and and then, and then with the gaming, all of it, like it almost feels to me, you know, with him being able to come in, like this is the way that it's been. This is he's like grown up um, in Iceland and like just seen it in this very natural way. I feel like your the different experiences you've had almost bridge it to make it more palatable, also for the U.S. <laughs> like for people who haven't grown up um, in it already. Right. That makes sense. It does. Well, well, my, I mean, my goal, even though I've had horses for a very long time, you know, I, I, I wasn't ever very good at it. I certainly wasn't a professional. Um, and I, you know, I always considered myself, you know, a muggle, a a mere (laughs) mortal in the horse world. And so Stainer would do things and I would try to understand them technically and I would always be asking him, well, wait, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Right. He, he was, well, you know, you, you, well, I consider you a master too, but you know, uh, uh, in, in whatever the good sense of that word is, mm-hmm. but people who are really, you know, masterful, intuitive and skillful trainers, you know, you see them do things and you, you would always see the horse just magically sort of change instantly. And you'd say, how, how did you do that? And then you would try to look at the things they were doing and it, I, I never could figure out, well, why did you make that choice and not this choice? Why did you do this and not that? And, uh, you know, 100,000 technical things that I thought I would need to understand. And, of course, that was very frustrating for him because he was trying to communicate 
what it was really about, but he didn't have the language for that. Mm -hmm. And he didn't, I mean, he, he actually had gone to the, and graduated from Holar University, which is a, you know, a horse and agriculture university in Iceland, very prestigious, but he still didn't have the language of movement science. And, and he still always believed in his heart. It was about this connection to nature. But of course, now I realize, and he realizes that what was really happening was this idea of proprioception and um, this diversity of movement exposure that the horses were getting all of the time mm -hmm. that was, you know, and this awareness of their environment, this liveliness that came from just simply being in that environment. And, you know, he would always say things like, well, the key is to just stay out of the horse's way. And I thought, well, that's great if the horse is already moving pretty well and motivated. And of course, right. in Iceland, the horses mostly were. So it was a very different perspective. And here we take horses and we often put them into a situation where um, we just shut down their movement. We yeah. just make them move less and less and less, either by lifestyle or often both lifestyle and the very specific training. Yeah. We, we restrict their movements until there's this tiny subset of movements in their movement toolbox. And then we wonder why they get injured so easily, you know, in turnout or anywhere. Um, whereas he was saying, you know, no, we want to keep the maximum exposure and variety and interest of their own natural movements. And then we just have to make sure we don't mess it up when we get on. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and, and you know, and that was a really 180 degrees from what so many of us were doing, and so I, I had to get my, I had to get my brain around that, and then once I really understood it from the science perspective, you know, then suddenly I said, oh, you know, this is something that mere mortals, people like me, could learn. Because it doesn't help if only people who are professional trainers can actually do this. That we can't make a difference in the horse world unless it's something we can do ourselves. Unless something who's someone who's even, you know, really a novice should be able to make a big difference in their horse's life. And so that was really how Stanner and I came together to say, can we do something? Can we do a project that could help, you know, quote unquote, mere mortals, be able to do some of these things with their horse, to be able to give them some of that. And some of what, you know, some of what occurs naturally in Iceland, can we help bring that, you know, bring a little bit of Iceland, you know, back to the horses who are not in Iceland, who don't have that lifestyle anymore. And, you know, I realize now that in California, we had to work so hard. I mean, the part of California we were in because our farm was so tiny and it was on a very steep hill. I mean, it was beautiful, but wow, it was so difficult to have any uh, place where the horses could really move out. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and even their living space was really small. We did everything that we could, but it was so difficult. And so we had to really do a lot of of work to help compensate for that. So now that I live here, honestly, I'm like, well, this is just horse keeping on easy mode because the environment <laughs> is really doing most of the work. <laughs> but when we don't have that, 
um, you know, then, then yes, there, that was part of how this all emerged was, well, what can we do if we don't have that? Or if the horse, you know, the horse is turned out into a big area, but he still has some movement compensation problems, or maybe he got an injury mm-hmm. and horses and humans won't automatically reset after an injury is healed. So this is probably the single biggest cause of dysfunction in you know, really any mammal, anyone with a, a mammal movement system is that after the injury is healed, the nervous system doesn't automatically reset back to its original defaults and, and we just keep compensating. And then over time, that compensation is what becomes a problem, not the original injury, which usually heals, you know, pretty quickly. So there does have to be some extra things if that happens, mm-hmm. if the horse, you know, has a problem, even if he's in a great environment. But you know, most of the time, um, you know, we started finding that, which the science actually says it will happen. We could turn the horses out in a, you know, for several months, but if we put them out in a very good movement functional state, and I don't really mean high fitness, I mean, good overall movement function, Mm -hmm. then they could come back after no work and actually be in better condition than they were. And we started yeah. seeing that over and over and over. And it was such a shock because I'm so used to the opposite. You know, the horse comes out of a long break, which, of course, now this wouldn't happen if the horse was on a break in a small paddock. Yeah. But if the horse is in a pretty decent environment, and I don't mean it, it doesn't have to be a huge thing. I, can, I mean like a two-acre pasture, right? Mm-hmm. The horse could still come back and after two or three months of nothing actually end up in many ways moving better than they were before. They will have lost a little bit of like, you know, cardio endurance fitness, but that's it. They're actually moving better, more fluidly, more happily, still strong is amazing. Yeah. And, but that's, that's what movement function is. It's just respecting that the body is actually meant to do all of these things. Yeah. I, I think about like the horses that are you know, let's say in really high dressage training or any kind of like competition, like athletes, you know, we think of and the amount of injury you see and, and the thought of, you know, them going off work. I I always felt like that kind of felt odd that it was like, if the horse isn't with people, then they're just going to get out of shape. Their body's going to, you know, their confirmation is going to change. It's, or not their confirmation, but like how their posturing is going to change to something really terrible. And, um, but you think about that, it usually is like a small paddock or leaving them in a stall, which I would imagine is kind of like the equivalent of leaving them in a chair and, yeah, you know, not letting nature take care of their body in the way that it's meant to. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, have you read this book, Move Your DNA? I haven't. I've looked it up um, because you've recommended it and I have it saved yeah. in my book. <laughs> Uh, you should get it coming up. You should get it. But just but the the short version is that um, it, it's about the ways in which uh, the entire body, like the internal organs, everything, every system in our body is is physically meant to be um, to be moved, to be squished, to be compressed, to have all of these different forces operating on all of the cells in our body all the time because you know that's I mean we evolved to be moving all of the time (laughs) and suddenly we're not 
And so it's not just a fitness issue. It's much more deeply an overall health issue. Mm -hmm. And of course, we know that with horses. I mean, uh, we were at one farm. We used to live in Colorado and we were on a big farm that had a very fancy stable and barn. And of course, our horses were not in the stable. Our horses were, you know, out in big pasture or paddocks. Mm -hmm. And but the fancy horses were all in the stable. And we had this old vet and he would come out and he would, you know, give our horses vaccinations or whatever. And he would always laugh. He would say, thank God for those stall horses, because you guys are useless, but those stall horses, they get, keep me in business. <laughs> and he was like, he was always out for colics, for ulcers, for so many conditions. And these scrappy, scruffy, dirty, you know, horses out left in the pastures and the paddocks, right, were, were just so much healthier. Yeah. <laughs> And now, you know, there's so much science known about how the horse's digestive system works. And just yeah. that alone is, should be enough to terrify anyone about keeping their horses in stalls, yeah. in small boxes. I, I mean, a few hours a day or, or you know, if, obviously if there's a medical reason, you know, or the most severe weather. I mean, there'll probably be a couple days out of this year where we will bring our horses in to one of the um to one of the barns because a few times a year here there's pretty extreme winds and and the horses actually are okay with it <laughs> but but we can't bear to go out in it to even try to feed them so it's yeah like, <laughs> it's still just about the people but you know I mean that's that's not you know some short periods of time or when you absolutely have to but otherwise no I mean we know what it does to humans right solitary confinement has been you know, uh, in the psychological community, that's been evaluated as a form of torture. Yeah. And for horses who are just... <laughs> and that's so for simple. humans, right. And for horses, a thousand times worse. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, what's dawning on me right now is I always thought it was interesting. Um, I had one friend, a horse friend, who is a really big worrier about her horses. And it seemed like her horses were always getting injured. And then there was this other guy at the farm who, like really didn't care very much about his horse, but like his horse just never got injured. And I'm thinking now I used to think like, it was like the energy, like, I was like, what is it? Like, why is, why is this a self-fulfilling prophecy? Um, but really like, I think all the measures that she was doing to like keep her horses safe was just getting in the way and like actually making her horses more fragile. Um, oh Yeah. Yeah, well, that is what we were doing. And we were all taught to do that. And I mean, that's what yeah. we were doing to the humans. Yes. That was, so So my, uh, you know, university thesis was on knee rehabilitation because I had had a major, major knee surgery from, I used to be a crazy athlete in college and I was a sponsored skateboarder. So I Cool. <laughs> You've done so many cool a, things. <laughs> that was a long time ago, but I had a pretty horrific injury and so I was experiencing this knee rehabilitation. So my advisor said, well, why don't you do your thesis on knee rehabilitation? And, you know, and at the time, and then again, for the 10 years after that in the profession, there was a lot of emphasis on all of the biomechanical movements that were thought to stress the body in particular ways. And we would tell people not to do that. And especially if you had ever had an injury. So for 30 years, I was told and told myself based on my education, you know, don't squat below 90 degrees. 
that will put tremendous stress on your knees. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. And sure enough, if I even tried, I would feel severe agony, like, you know, white hot daggers of pain. Mm. And then if I somehow managed to try to push through the pain, my legs would just collapse. Like I wasn't able to do it. It was, and I, I, you know, I just thought, well, I'm just obviously never going to be able to do it. And then, so when I went back to, you know, restudy movement again, this, whatever it is, three years ago, the first thing I looked at was this 180 degree turn on, well, no, these movements that we used to say were dangerous. Well, that's why you should do them (laughs) because sooner or later you're going to find yourself in that position. You need to train everything. And, and it's actually not dangerous in the way that we once thought, but you're, you know, you're meant to do it, right? Your body's supposed to do that. It's always been able to do that it's just that now your brain is stopping you from doing that it's screaming at you and I'm like no you don't understand I really literally can't do it even if I could work through the pain my legs just give out it's like there's something horribly wrong there and I spent three days looking at this functional movement stuff from this physical therapist and in three days I did a few little sort of neurological tricks and Suddenly, I was able to do a full squat all the way to the ground, pain-free. And I've been doing it for the last three years. And it's like, how could I do something that eliminated pain when I was in agony for 30 years? And how could I do that in three days? And it was like, I could just literally feel my nervous system going, oh, okay, sure, go ahead. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Wow. And, And that's when I sort of started to realize for myself, right? Experiencing it for myself, what that actually could feel like. And then we've seen this happen over and over and over again with the horses. And like, we'll hear from people where, I mean, one woman had her horse on the, on the, you know, we, we sometimes put them on the gymnastics mat, kind mm-hmm. of this foam mat. And she had this horse with a lot of physical difficulties. And there was one leg he would not pick up, like for the farrier, for anyone. Um, you know, I mean, he would have to be he would have to be anesthetized to do it because he would just freak out. And he, he would either fall over or he would just be so aggressive because it was frightening to him. He just could not pick up that one leg. Mm-hmm. So she did this little set of exercises on the mat. And he, he very nearly did fall over on one of the exercises, you know, like a carrot stretch on mm-hmm. the unstable mat. Um, you know, which was definitely a little bit frightening to her. So she, you know, scaled it back. And she said the next day he picked up that hind leg and she was just staring at him like, oh, my God, oh, my God. (laughs) And he was looking at her like, what? (laughs) Like, wow, is this unusual? I mean, it's just my leg. (laughs) And it was like, you know, that that idea in his, you know, nervous system and his brain. I mean, we call it releasing the parking brakes, right, that his his brain had, uh, you know, fired and rewired a new pattern as a result of that very unusual experience that told his, you know, brain and nervous system, yes, actually, you can do this. You can actually shift your weight over to this side. And if you do, well, then picking up the leg is no problem at all. And it was like that sort of idea. And this idea that there are so many things that are not a result of actual muscle strength problems, you know, muscle weakness, muscle tightness, Mm -hmm. that so much is actually just 
the nervous system trying to protect us. So I went down and the the path of uh, studying pain science. And I know people would say, well, what does what does pain science have to do with you know movement and motivation in horses? But it's pain science that really drove this um, this very new thinking about the nervous system is just trying to protect us. And pain is one of the things that it uses because it's very effective. And that pain does not actually equal damage. <laughs> just as the case with my knees, right? That yeah. the nervous system is just saying, don't do that. You don't have the integrity for that. Uh, and I'm going to use pain to stop you or weakness. Um, and those are two very effective things. Hmm. And then, you know, or even fear, right? All these yeah. things that you can have. But if you make the nervous system feel safe about it, which has nothing to do with, uh, you know, well, it has a little bit to do with emotionally, you know, yes, you can do it, you can do it, right? But you could talk yourself into something and your nervous system is still saying, oh, hell no. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't care how much belief you have. It's not going to happen. But if you can actually get the nervous system to believe that you do have the capability to do this, then suddenly it will it will allow that it will allow more strength that you actually have and you know that was just mind-blowing to me but i was yeah. watching these physical therapists do these demonstrations so i went back and got like i said some new certifications and then some of the courses you'd watch these physical therapists and they would say okay let me do this test and you'd be you know you'd have a certain level of strength and then they would change just one little tiny thing that didn't seem to have any connection to that movement. And suddenly you would be 30% stronger. Hmm. And they would say, oh yeah, because you just convinced your brain to free up the strength that you actually do have, but that you've been blocked from using by your brain, which knows more than you do about what's possible. And and your brain will always err on the side of you know being a drama queen, right? It's gonna try to protect <laughs> Yeah. And so, and it's really the simplest answer, which is just more movement exposure, more diversity of movement, you know, restoring, refreshing proprioception. So it's just very simple equation, use it or lose it. And the less variety in our movements, the less more end ranges of motion, all of that, well, the brain just starts to, to have, they call it, it's not a real thing, but they call it, um, <clears throat> excuse me, they call it motor amnesia, where your brain just absolutely forgets that you, you have that capability. And I just like to think of it as your brain is saying, well, how would I know? You haven't done it in <laughs> such a long time. I don't know that you can still do it. And, you know, if, if I don't think you can do it, then I'm not going to let you do this other thing at a completely different part of your body. Because it, you know, every movement is affecting every part of the body. So that's the yeah. other thing too. We, you know, we tend to, especially in the West, we focus on symptoms. Mm -hmm. I'm going to treat that symptom, and we always think the problem is right where we see it. You know, like, yeah, okay, um, you can't step under with that hind leg. Therefore, that hind leg is weak. Right? That's the right. most <laughs> common thing I have heard over and over and over and over, and. You know, I mean, I already knew from an exercise physiology standpoint, that doesn't make any sense because real strength actually builds very quickly. It doesn't take very long. So the fact that we have these persistent problems means it wasn't, that wasn't a tissue problem. It's not a weakness problem. 
It's a, for whatever reason, the horse's nervous system is saying, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And it'll just keep fighting you. And if you eventually fight and push the horse through to do something his nervous system is saying no to, well, then the nervous system just finds a different compensation. And you'll see it three months later. Mm-hmm. So I had a horse, uh, I had a vet- veterinarian once who told me that, oh, yeah, when we go see a horse that's lame, the first thing we ask is, what happened to this horse three months ago? <laughs> and they'll go, what do you mean? He just was lame yesterday. And they're like, yeah, but what did he do three months ago? <laughs> what, what happened? <laughs> and they're, they're like, this probably is, wasn't caused by anything he did yesterday. <laughs> yeah. Oh my. It, all of this, it's just brilliant. It makes so much sense. Um, and I'm curious, is it possible to kind of explain like how you changed your like, um, nervous system, like, and made it feel safe and how you do that with the horses? Like, is there an actual process you take? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, so the simplest way and the first way is, um, so, so obviously, you know, the concept of proprioception, right? That we have, we have these, um, mechanical sensors throughout our body in very, you know, all kinds of different place types of them. And they are sending back to the brain about what's happening in the body. And so, the nervous system needs to know both what is the body doing right now, exactly what is it doing, but also what is it capable of doing. And so if either of those things are, um, you know, fuzzy or blurry or, you know, imagine like really old school dial-up modem video on the internet (laughs) compared to like, HD high resolution, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, or a very low pixelated picture, right? Where you can't really see very much detail compared to, you know, a very high resolution mm-hmm. photo. Well, the brain is making a map all the time and it has a map of what the body's capable of and also what the body is doing right now. And if either of those are, um, you know, missing pixels, <laughs> then the brain says, I don't have enough data to make a good decision and I'm going to err on the side of safety. But the safety is not your long-term well-being, right? It's trying to protect you from getting eaten by a tiger. So it's like, well, you might have a little bit of a limp, but you're not going to be eaten, right? You're not going to, you know, crack your spinal cord or do something that could, you know, that could really put you at risk. It's not thinking about the long-term. It's thinking about, you know, much more short-term and so the answer, if the brain doesn't have enough good data to make a good decision, we just have to give it more data. And that's really, that's really the answer. And so how do you give it more data? Well, the wonderful thing that's been discovered is that just a touch is activating the proprioception sensors in the skin. And so just touch alone is starting to restore and refresh I mean, a lot of times people use the word body awareness, Mm -hmm. but most of the time when people use that word, especially in the movement profession, they really mean conscious awareness. Like, do you know where your body is right now? And we're really very unconcerned about conscious awareness. We're concerned about, does the brain know where your body is right now? 
and does your is your nervous system aware and does it know again that you're actually capable of making a wide range of movements so that's why movement novelty movement diversity is really important so that's the first step mm-hmm. and the fact that you can do it with touch is so beautiful and it doesn't have to we're not talking about like massage or you know, acupuncture points or anything. We're literally just talking about touch through the skin. But, you know, I would t- I would notice that I would stay away sometimes from touching the areas where my horses needed it the most, places where we might go, oh, he's a bit touchy back there, right? right. That's often the places that have very low proprioception. It's usually in the hind end. So horses can make decisions about where their body is uh, and not as much as humans do with our eyes, but horses also, you know, they can see their front legs, mm-hmm. but they can't always see everything about their hind end. And so they're all, already missing some some of that visual data. But horses are, they don't use their visual sense nearly as much as humans do for movement. Mm-hmm. Um, they really rely on their, their kinesthetic sense. So just doing a lot more like light grooming and brushing all mm-hmm. the way across the horse's hind quarters, you know, across his hind end, everywhere down his hind legs, that alone can make a huge difference. And this is something, again, that I didn't understand when Stainer would first start working with a horse, especially a very compromised, you know, rehabilitation horse. He would just spend two weeks with them, just grooming them. And I kept thinking, is he just like trying to bond with it, right? Is this just like a, <laughs> but that's really not like him. Like he didn't use that kind of language. And to right. be honest, that he didn't really think that way. So I thought, you know, it wasn't like this idea that we would do, right? Of spend undemanding time with your horse, right? right. I knew that there was something very specific he was doing, but it was like, really, how long are you going to do this? <laughs> it would be like two weeks, three weeks. And then suddenly things would blossom. And he'd be like, well, I can do this now and avoid so much struggle. But he didn't know, again, how to explain what he was doing. Well, now I realize it, it was, he was just re-establishing this proprioceptive map. Mm-hmm. So that's one piece. So that's a, that's a p- big piece because that's such a nice, easy, wonderful thing that we can do. Yeah, and uh, the, unexpected <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, but the other one, and, and so, but here's the thing. We... Um, I especially learned from him is we do it a lot while the horse is in motion because mm-hmm. it's not enough to just be doing it beforehand, right? That, yeah. that helps that helps reconnect the body, but where it's most needed is when the horse is actually doing stuff. So that's why Stainer would really emphasize when you're working with the horse on the ground, especially, again, we had horses that were extremely, extremely compromised, you know, neurologically. My horse, Dramer, right? So, so many problems. And so it was, it was really important for them. And he would say, you've got to get closer to the horse's hip. You've got to be able to put your hands on him while he's trying to do the movement. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, of course, I, I got these big, long targets with a huge piece of foam on the end so that I could be at a greater distance and still reach up, you know, and stroke his hind end, cross his stifle, right, all of these things while he was trying to do the movements because that's when he needed it even more. Um, and that's the kind of awareness. So, but it's not like bring awareness. Like I know, again, a lot of people will say, well, I'm going to touch here with the whip to bring awareness. I think most of the time people mean they want the horse to be conscious of 
oh, I'm supposed to do something with that thing you just touched. And mm-hmm. that's, and I mean, occasionally we might use cues that way, but that's not what we're talking about. We're literally talking about just giving the brain uh, this flood of rich data about the where his hind end is. And mm-hmm. this is the one place where we often do come bring the horse into a very small space, sometimes even just a big stall. Um, I mean, if the, not if the horse is, you know, freaked out about it, but to actually do movement because the walls provide a lot of information hmm. and that helps the horse learn where he is, where his hind end is in space, all of that. So sometimes we will use a lot of these things to help the horse feel like, oh, okay, okay. Oh, I touched the wall with my, you know, with my butt, right? Again, we'd never do it if a horse was uncomfortable being in that space, but when they are, you know, we'll use that to help, again, give them more information. But the other big piece, and the one that mattered for me, like with doing the squats, and, and uh, there was a few other movements too that were crucial for me that I hadn't done in so long. And that now are just like, oh, I can't believe it. They're so easy. Um, <laughs> they, don't, they don't require any fitness. It's really literally just getting back the movement that you already were born with. Mm-hmm. Um, is showing your body that you have a greater range of motion under control. So, you know, a lot of times um, uh, you'll see, well, humans, but also with horses, right, where people will passively stretch the the limbs, like they'll pick up a front leg and just pull it, like to do a very light, gentle stretch. Right, yeah. So, but the, the science says that passive stretching doesn't, in fact, we don't believe anyone should ever do that except a, like a physiotherapist or a veterinarian who's actually trying to assess something in the joint. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, there's really never a time to do that because it, first of all, puts the horse at risk um, and and can cause the horse to try to resist what you're doing, no matter how gentle you are. Mm -hmm. But it also doesn't tell the brain anything. So we used to think it did because we'd go, well, if I put the body in that range of motion, then doesn't that restore the map and say, oh, look, turns out you can go there. But no, because the brain says it, it, it only matters what you're capable of doing yourself. Because yeah. in an emergency, right? Mm-hmm. Like if, you're, if you come off a curb and you step badly and you're about to twist your ankle, right? The, the choices that happen have to be automatic, instant reflexes about yeah. what the body is capable of doing. It happens at a, you'll twist your ankle way before you have a chance to make a conscious thought. I mean, thoughts yeah. don't travel that quickly. So it's like, it's got to happen at a level before conscious thought. God, the body's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, it's got to be something that the body is actually capable of generating on its own, which is also the reason that we don't teach movements using um, a a lot of guidance or sometimes Mm -hmm. any guidance. Obviously we don't use force because again, same problem. It's, it's, even if we didn't mind using force, but we do, um, it doesn't help the brain. It doesn't help the body it, because it, the movement is not organized in the same way. It doesn't create the movement. It can create something that might look like it mm-hmm. on the outside biomechanically, but it's not the same inside. There's a thousand different ways that movement could be happening. What's exactly firing inside, which muscles, which stabilizers, what pattern, it's all different. And yet it can look the same. So if it's not automatically self-organized by the body as a, as a, you know, as a response or as a natural movement solution, then it doesn't have the the beneficial effect. And so it's got to be something that the, um, 
that the brain sees as this is something the horse is capable of generating on his own. And one of the main things that will release more capability in the horse, strength the horse has but is being held back from, flexibility, right, or, well, mm-hmm. suppleness, you know, mobility, is if the brain and nervous system can experience the body moving into bigger ranges of motion in a variety of ways. And that's actually, well, it's very simple to do for humans. For horses, it's a little bit trickier. Um, but that's why we do some of these really kind of strange looking exercises, but like even something like Spanish walk, right? Mm-hmm. Now that's a very advanced exercise. We have this thing we just call Panther walk, which is just really means we try to teach the horse to have this very exaggerated walk because it, you know, people go, but it puts them out of balance. And we're like, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly what it does. And it, it causes the horse to learn to self-correct for that balance. And it also, at the same time, it's telling his body, oh, look, you actually can safely move with that very exaggerated range of motion. Um, it's understood now that some of the mechanical receptors, the they're called mechanoreceptors, but just the you know proprioception sensors in the body, um, may not even be triggered until they are in the later ranges of motion. So there's so much physical training of horses that keeps the horses in a very minimal range of motion. Yeah. Um, stays away from these bigger ranges of motion. Now, a lot of things we do, um, you know, with just range of motion would be dangerous if you repeated them over and over again. And that is really the last big piece of this. Um, which is this idea called movement variability. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage everyone to just Google this TED Talk on movement variability. Um, but it, it also comes from sort of this, the what we call the father of biomechanics. The guy who actually coined the term biomechanics, I think, would probably be horrified by what has become of biomechanics. Because his original view was this idea called repetition without repetition, that the movement should literally be a little bit different every single time, that we should not be repeating the same movement over and over. And he studied, um, he studied expert movers. And one of the, he was a Russian scientist from, you know, quite some time ago. One of the things he studied was blacksmiths, expert Mm. blacksmiths. And he realized that they had extreme consistency in their performance of, you know, like at the moment they struck, you know, struck the metal onto the anvil. Hmm. But then he, he did this deep analysis of how they moved a little differently, sometimes a lot differently to get there every single time. And this was the first theory of, well, this is probably very protective because this is something that's causing a lot of concussive shock in the body right? He's, they're mm-hmm. pounding down, right? Yeah. They're doing it in a different way every single time. Well, then that they're, you know, they're reducing the incidence of repetitive stress. And then they started to find out that this idea of moving a little bit differently every time is also part of the body's natural way if we allow it to optimize movement. Because it's giving the brain so much more data with every repetition 
And each time the brain is learning from those experiences. So if we shut down movement, which is what all movement professionals did when I was in school, because that's what we learned to do. The goal mm -hmm. is to make movement more and more consistent. Yeah. It was, to get, <laughs> was to get rid of all the variability. And now they're like, oh shit. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> They're like, oh my gosh, that was, that was literally the worst thing that we could do because we need that healthy variability. Now there's, I mean, it's a more complex topic than that, mm -hmm. but in many ways it is actually that simple that there needs to be a lot more movement variability. And there's a very robust and really interesting and exciting science. I mean, it's, it's geeky. Nobody has to do it. You, you won't, you won't. I mean, you could just watch that TED talk and really know like the 80, 20 of what you need about movement variability, <laughs> but it's things like, so there's this idea called postural sway, which is, and they've never really understood why this happens. Like if you stand still, you're actually swaying back and forth mm -hmm. and, and that this is healthy. And they started to find out that people who have less postural sway. I mean, there's people who can have a dysfunction or, you know, or a neurological problem where they're just all over the place, but we're not talking about that. They find that people who are not healthy in some way or are injured will have less movement variability. They'll be very rigid. Hmm. And they say, well, what is it about this movement variability that's actually reflects health? And then the, the theory now is that, well, again, postural sway is like the brain's way of saying, let me gather more information. So if you just ever so subtly are swaying, you know, even an eighth of an inch, it might not even be noticeable to anybody. You're, you've just gathered a lot more information in your brain about the ground, about your body, about the atmosphere, about everything. And so there's this constant aliveness where things are not fixed and rigid. Yeah. And, and so as soon as I looked at that, and then, of course, this is the revolution that started to happen in the human high-performance athletics world. So they started saying, wow, we've been training people to be less healthy in the movement, to be yeah. more precise, more perfect, more consistent. And that was actually the wrong thing to do. And we were limiting the person's ability to really reach their own you know, optimal potential by doing that. That was one of the first things that started to happen. And then this whole notion of uh, what was called the ideal biomechanics template. So that's the word that was used, you know, when I was in school and for a long time in, you know, whether it was fitness training or high performance sports or whatever it was, rehabilitation, everything was about, there is the one optimal way that's been, you know, biomechanically studied. And this is what everyone should aspire to. Of course, it will be a little different depending on, you know, the length of their limbs and the ratios, but it's, it's the idealized movement. And in sports, it would be take the best mover and everyone should try to do it like that. Right. <laughs> and, then, and now uh, it's been amazing to me. I work with a lot of, um, or I should say I don't work with them. I learn from them. They are my mentors, are human performance coaches, not, um, you know, not, not, not people in the horse world. And one of them is a guy who's, who is a movement coach to NFL football players, to the top NFL football players. And what amazed me about him is that he said, uh, he realized one day that his best athletes were 
performing well, not because of the normal things that he was doing, the good training he was doing, but in spite of it. Mm. And then he realized that he would get them really, really good in a specific new activity or exercise or drill that he would do, mm-hmm. that when it came time to play the game, they weren't able to use any of that. And so he kind of, he calls it his Robert Frost moment that, you know, two roads diverged in the yellow wood, right? Yeah. And he was really successful. People thought he was amazing. He had top athletes and he said, you know what? My athletes were, were some of the best athletes in the world, but they were great compensators. And it wasn't because of my skills and what I was doing with them. And so he decided, you know, I've just really got to change. So he really went down this new, newer movement science path. And then he's been, very, his name is Sean Mishka, and he has become a very vocal, very vocal and, um, you know, a kind of evangelist for these new ways of thinking and for all of the science behind it. And he's run a couple of um, science skill acquisition conferences now, and it, it's very exciting. But it's just interesting to hear how um, this high-performance human movement world has started to change. And, and it's, it's a profound change. I mean, you can see how it's like literally 180 degrees. It's not like a little tweak. Yeah. Man, this is all so fascinating. I'm like, and it makes so much sense even just... Uh on like how we limit ourselves. I've been thinking with like letting the horses out and like getting rid of the fencing in this way of how that has freed my own thinking so much. And I can feel it in myself of even just what is perfect versus what is really healthy. And I'm just, I'm loving that. I'm like eating this up. This is so fascinating. Um, so for people who want to like, I'm like equally fascinated right now about people and horses, like incorporating this into their life for people who want to, let's say with like a smaller acreage, like you were doing in California, um, really start doing some exercises with their horses and they're doing the, you know, brushing and like bringing attention to, um, you know, the physical sensation. Are there also, exercises like I I read your um book on like the core exercises that people can do for horses yeah um well this is one of the reasons that we've been so big on this um just getting a gymnastics mat you know Mm -hmm. basically any gymnastics mat um I mean we get ours from Amazon and uh it's just a piece of foam um it's it's not something that's meant to be really really unstable it's just for the horses just a little bit Um, Because simply standing on it will cause them to have way more variability in their movement. And they can't really lock up in the same way because there's a constant low-level sort of shifting and rebalancing. And so literally just standing on it, they can suddenly get a lot more new information into their brain. Um, And so that, I think, is the single best, easiest thing that people could do if they have a small space is to have something like that. And and it can be anything. I mean, it could even, you know, uh, anything that you feel is safe, right? I mean, some people use like mattresses, but that's way too, too squishy. Um, It's not, it's not meant to, it's something that's meant to just add a little bit of variability that you might get in a natural environment with a lot of, you know, less 
secure and stable footing, but not meant to be dangerous. So mm -hmm. the foam is just an easy, cheap way to do it if you don't have an environment for it. But you could do it with other things. Um, and, uh, and then exercises that get the horse to have a bigger range of motion. And, of course, you can do that with a, with a target. So with a target, you can easily teach the horse to reach more with his front leg. And so one of the very first things that Stainer ever, ever said to me about my horses is he said, you know that space behind their front elbow? He's like, that's way too tight and restricted. And he's like, make that space like three inches bigger when they're moving. <laughs> and I'm like, well, how do I do that? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, before I was really using targets and stuff. Or even just um, walking over ground poles, right? Mm -hmm. And we're talking about low stress things. In fact, they need to be low stress because by definition, I mean, if you try it, right? Just literally, I mean, not right now while you're talking to me, but <laughs> <laughs> go out and try to walk with exaggerated strides. And when you step just like a foot longer than you're used to, you will feel very unstable. I'm literally because gonna your do body this. <laughs> doesn't your body is much less stable at the ends of your range of motion and that's where stability matters so a lot of times people go oh I'm very stable but they're actually using not their quote-unquote stabilizing muscles but their big you know the gymnastics the big muscles that we normally think of right the big mm -hmm. ones that you see that move that you lift weights with well, if those are doing the work of stabilizing because they're just strong, they can just muscle you into stability, that's not real stability. And the brain knows it. The brain is like, you can't fool me. You're not really stable. If you got knocked out of position and you were at an, a greater range of motion, I could just push you over with a feather. And so this exaggerated range of motion is super important because if you don't take the big, strong muscles sort of off the table – then the stabilizers never really have a need to to work in the correct way or to fire these patterns. And then the brain never feels really safe. It feels like you're just skating by on your big muscles, right? <laughs> and you can't fool the nervous system. So, Brilliant. you know, this is a reason why you can see horses that even look really fit and still, quote, can't step under or mm -hmm. won't be supple on one side. Well, all of these things really are sort of nervous system stability problems. I mean, it's very rare to have these problems be something that is truly a serious deficit in tissues, like yeah. seriously, actually shortened tissues or actually seriously for real weaker muscles. Because most of these things, it's not, like I said, it's not a strength problem. It's suddenly that strength is, you know, appears magically when the brain feels like, oh, you have the joint integrity for this. And usually the thing that's not working is in a different part of the body from the, the problem the horse is experiencing. So, you know, and I think we all know this, right, that you can experience the horse not wanting to, quote, give at the pole. And, you know, now I think enough, you know, equine scientists have said that problem could be happening in his hind fetlock. <laughs> it's all connected. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, we can't be saying, oh, the problem is in his pole. I got to soften his pole, right? It's like, eh, probably not, right? And in fact, that may just make it worse. Yeah. But, but yeah, so anything that gets the horse to explore more novelty. So like we think novelty, 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 but not just, you know, a lot of people think about animal enrichment as cognitive uh, novelty, mm -hmm. you know, like more like 
sort of activities and puzzles, but really we're thinking movement activities, movement puzzles, movement diversity, movement novelty. And now you can see why we've become so vocal about not putting steel shoes on the horse. Mm-hmm. And again, I mean, I don't want to shame people for steel shoes because there are a lot of horses that need some kind of protection. Mm-hmm. And right now the choices are very limited in what you can do. Um, there are very few of these alternative, um, yeah. yeah. And, and whether it's boots or, um, you know, something called composite shoes. So shoes that, you know, that are not made of steel, um, they will often have a tiny little piece of metal, maybe where the nails go. But mm-hmm. the minute you put something on their feet like that, even if you're not looking at things like, you know, what's happening in the sole of the hoof, you're, you're drastically limiting the proprioception that's coming through the horse's foot. And in both humans, you know, and horses, the amount of sensory apparatus devoted to our hands and feet is massive compared to so many other parts of our body. And so as soon as you put steel shoes on a horse, you've just sent him into dial-up modem land (laughs) information and as soon as he has bare feet or in boots or you know something that can flex and move to reflect the environment underneath well then suddenly you've just given him an hd you know um uh, high bandwidth internet upgrade (laughs) and that really matters um way more than i ever could have imagined And boy, they're really finding this with humans, too, that one of the best interventions that have so far ever been found to help, for example, the elderly. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of work on the elderly and falling um, is a is a huge predictor of a a very shortened life because often will lead to a fractured hip. And then that, you know, shortens their life. There's all kinds of things. And they have been able to have the biggest intervention, not from balance training, but from simply putting more proprioception into their feet. Wow. <laughs> yes. So you can literally lengthen someone's life that way. And so, you know, we've been restricting horses, uh, you know, so data to their feet, but just anything like people do um, proprioception gardens where let's say that you have, you know, a half an acre paddock. You could put, bring in some wood chips, bring in some different kinds of gravel, bring in some river rocks and have just a few different places and some sand and some different experiences that the horses walks over because every different kind of footing he walks over is going to give his brain new information. It's going to cause new, slightly different movements and all of that, all of that matters. So those are just really simple things that, that, you know, almost anyone can do very easily and usually pretty inexpensively. Those are all great. Um, I, I, I'm already like planning different things I'm going to be doing. (laughs) I know I always talk about this, but so, you know, the carrot stretch, it's called the carrot Mm -hmm. stretch. We, of course, the target, but carrot stretch where you just, you know, you people who are not necessarily using targets, right. would just hold a carrot, you know, by the horse's ribs and then hip and then, you know, so the horse would reach back for it. Well, so, you know, I'd always thought of that as, well, it's a stretch, right? It's called mm-hmm. carrot stretch, you know, and, and a lot of times people would say, well, I don't even think that's a very good stretch. You know, it, it's, is that really helping or what if they're just bending from their neck or, you know, but it turns out that that's actually a stability exercise. Yeah. And 
So that exercise, I mean, you only want to do like, you know, if you just do two or three a day on each side, it's absolutely amazing for the horse because if, if you allow the horse complete ability to organize his body in any way he wants, including if he decides he needs to start moving his legs around to do it, um, because now you're suddenly causing the horse to have to fire patterns and also recognize poor dysfunctional patterns. You're sort of forcing the brain to acknowledge that maybe that asymmetry and that locking and bracing he's been doing is maybe not working because you've taken it to the edge. And so if people did carrot stretches and also on the mat and like with maybe two feet uphill and two feet downhill, yeah, that's one of the fastest, best ways to help a horse's nervous system really rewire itself for movement patterns. So asymmetry, you know, that someone might be working on, oh, he's still crooked on that side. He's still crooked. He still won't step under month after month after month, right? Mm -hmm. Which, again, doesn't make any sense physically, but I certainly know what happens. It certainly happened to me. But people can put the horse on a sideways slope with, again, obviously with no stress, Mm -hmm. freedom, because they don't have freedom, then none of this actually, this could just end up worse. Full freedom to organize his body to solve this puzzle, suddenly you may be able to unlock things that um, that basically erase all of those former problems. Now, it may be some time where the horse now has to, uh, so we, we call it, we got this from a, another functional movement specialist called fire, wire, and seal. So it's the idea that firing is some activity that just causes new neural patterns to fire. And so that could be the, you know, reaching more than you've reached or getting more proprioception in an area that you haven't, stretching a little bit further, right? Just doing something novel causes a new thing to fire. And the more of a challenge it is to stability, the more will fire. And then wire, so this is the one other piece of it, is wiring means now you you use that new thing in a movement. And then seal is, well, you just need to practice that for a few weeks and then it can start to become part of the body's normal movement. So the wiring stage is if we do things like standing on the mat mm-hmm. and we're doing some carrot stretches, we now will only do that for like a minute. And then we will just walk the horse off the mat and maybe over a couple of ground poles. No stress, no big movement, just just walk. And then and then maybe come back to the mat and do it again. Or or even, you know, if you just have some unusual ground that you can do this work on. It doesn't have to be the mat. But the really important thing is that the whole point of this is movement. It's not actually for what they get from standing. It's not to get better at standing. It's right. for movement. And so, you know, do a couple of these little things and then just do a little bit of walking. And especially walk and then just turn around, like in a tight turn, right? You're not forcing the horse, but he's coming with you. So he has to do, navigate this little turn and then he comes back. And then you do a couple more things and then you walk again. If you just had some ground poles, Mm-hmm. and you have to do like a little quick turn and turn around and come back that that's like the superpower activity that that literally anyone can do in almost any space i mean i've done work like this in a stall when i had no other option <laughs> and i mean i taught my horse vavi how to do canter departs in the stall awesome. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> you know you you do what you can when you like I said, now I feel like oh, every, it's too easy it's now. It's easy autopilot. <laughs> I, I love, I'm so fascinated. Uh, I keep saying that, but I'm just like eating it up. Um, 
I also love that all of this feels so much more focused on like the process than like trying to get these end goals of like these end tricks or, you know, which is also this very kind of limited, like perfection mindset to me. Another thing I really want to touch on, um, just while in our last few minutes is you were talking about like the horse needs to have freedom while they're doing this. And I'd love to kind of, yeah, just talk about that. I know that you use positive reinforcement and also kind of getting into why limiting movement and also like micromanaging. Cause I think of a lot of the training, like I used to do when I was, you know, more traditional was very controlled, you know, for the sake of safety. I think, you know, people think, oh, I have to stay safe. And so I'm going to control the horse's every last movement, which feels like kind of the opposite of what you're saying right. here. Right. Um, and I'd kind of just like to touch on how you keep that freedom, both for, you know, a horse's mindset of feeling like they have choice, but also for movement feeling like, you know, they right. actually have full expression. Right. Well, and I'll say one thing that after really looking at some of the science, I really started to say, um, and again, I'm going to use poor language here, but excuse me, I used to say, you know, even if you were a complete asshole and you didn't care about the horse's motivation at all, you didn't care how the horses felt, you still would want to be training the horses without force because it actually literally has a deep impact on their ability to move in many different ways. I mean, first of all, there's a whole, I, I won't go into these details just to say this part though. There's a whole line of research on forced versus voluntary exercise. Mm-hmm. And basically, I mean, most horsemanship it is, it is forced exercise. I mean, the horse doesn't really have a choice. Yeah. He has to do the exercises. And so forced versus voluntary exercise there you're already there's good studies on this the studies aren't done on horses but again almost everything and and there has been enough evidence that most things that apply to mammals apply to all mammals Mm -hmm. when we're talking about things like the movement system and the you know the neurochemistry and so uh that forced exercise the animal can still get some some but not all some of the physiological benefits, right? There, there's some, you know, some of the fitness gains, some of the remodeling of the tissues, right? Some of that will happen even if it was forced, although that gets really tricky um, with certain kinds of movements for the reasons that I talked about, because the movements can be organized internally so differently. Mm-hmm. So the benefit they get physically might not even be the one that you're actually were trying to get. But there are other things, there are other components of exercise, other benefits of exercise. You know, like when they talk about how exercise, um, you know, like in humans, it's found to be like this practically miracle cure for things like mood, depression, you know, it's just a, a million things. Mm-hmm. And the brain, right? There, there's a lot of, um, there's been a lot of studies on how, you know, like brain training, brain exercises, you know, and video game brain exercises, and they keep coming back to, there is one exercise that's best for the brain and it's actually physical body exercise is still the best way to improve cognition, mental function. But what, Oh, sorry about that. But one of the things is, um, uh, there's a BDNF, which is a brain derived neurotrophic factor. And that's one of the things that's responsible for neuroplasticity, right? The ability to learn and remember, and there's studies that show that that is reduced 
in forced exercise actually goes down. Mm-hmm. Um, in voluntary exercise, it goes up. In, in forced exercise, it actually goes down. In fact, can be lowered even below what, what the mammal would have if they weren't doing any exercise at all. And so we're actually, if we're training with forced exercise, we're actually simultaneously decreasing the ability of the animal to learn and think and remember. Mm-hmm. And that's just the mental aspect. That's not even talking about the emotional impact, what that does to the body, um, and of course the physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but just the physical stuff alone. So in all of this newer movement science, um, it's absolutely crucial that the body is able to self-organize the movement. And so what this has meant in the human world um, and you probably heard me talk about this, is that, um, and, th- and there's a very robust science on this, actually, tons of studies on this, that more and more and more and more and more you reduce the actual instructions and cues where you actually tell the person how to move, mm-hmm. the ultimately long-term, better and more adaptable, more transferable, long-term performance the person has in that movement capability And of course, that was very counterintuitive for coaches who are used to telling you every step of the way, you know, oh, tweak that arm, get shoulder back, do this, do that, right? There's a whole bunch of different studies in different aspects of this, but it has a huge impact, a negative impact on performance. So, but not in the, not in the immediate situation. And that's Mm -hmm. why it's been so persistent. Because, you know, obviously, if you tell a person exactly how to position their body, you'll sort of get something that looks like what you want. But and so people will do that because if you don't say anything, well, then what do you get? Right. So they'll tell people how to move. And we're not even talking about physically manipulating them, which is a whole nother level, which is what horses really (laughs) of harming the ability. Right. And there I mean, there are there was a lot of physical therapy and, and this is going away, too. It would involve physically manipulating the person into the position. Mm-hmm. But now they're saying, well, no, because that doesn't actually help. I mean, there's a few like rehabilitation situations, again, where the person isn't even capable of moving into that, you know, into that range. But, you know, for a normal person, they, they need to be able to generate the movement themselves without any physical manipulation and now they're moving to um, what they call either low instruction or no instruction. We're not actually giving any cues about how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so when you think of horses, right, well, we're doing all this micromanaging and we're doing it physically. Mm-hmm. But now even with plus R. Um, so for a long time, I went through this transition of saying, well, this is great because we can do it with plus R. We don't have to do it with force. I can micro shape the horse using plus R and plus to R do the exact enforcement. To do the yeah to do the exact movement I want so he moves his his you know his forehead you know five degrees in this direction click right and mm-hmm. then next time six degrees and you know so successive approximation right I can I can tell him with the clicker right exactly how I want him to move and now of course I backed completely away from that because of the same problem that if we tell them how to do the movement, we will get a mechanical movement that can look right on the outside, right? The biomechanics can be perfect, but that has nothing to do with how the movement is being generated. And so we don't even know that it's firing the right 
patterns in the brain. We, you know, there's there's so many basically near infinite ways to create a movement that looks exactly the same on the outside and has the same result. But inside it's different and the inside is what matters. And the inside is where the safety happens and the inside is where the, the, the brain is able to do it. And the inside, the self-organization is the only way that you can teach a movement that becomes available to the body in other situations. <laughs> and, you know, and again, there's a lot of studies on this. It's like that part isn't even controversial anymore in the human world. But the tricky part is, well, then, you know, or, or I should say the, uh, you know, the straw man argument was always, oh, I see. You're just supposed to tell them nothing and then just let them do whatever the hell they want and hope they magically find the right <laughs> movement. You know, that's not going to happen. And so, no, that's not the answer either. But of course, because this is being used, in, you know, in places where there's a great deal of money at stake, like these high performance athletes, mm -hmm. there's very much um, great research in the human world about frameworks on, you know, no, you don't just, you know, the, the opposite of doing that doesn't mean, oh, then you just leave them to do whatever the heck they want and flail around and figure it out, which they may never. Instead, there's a, a framework or a set of tools or really just the perspective of now it's up to us to be context designers, that our job is to just create situations scenarios to set things up to design the environment to give them tasks in which their body is going to try to solve the problem in a way that gets us closer to something that we want which may or may not look anything like the quote ideal biomechanics template but that idea of the correct ideal biomechanics biomechanics template i mean that's that's really been going away in the human world because mm -hmm. they know that that's, that makes, again, fragile movers, and um, that it doesn't make sense. That when you look at some of the most elite performers, they're usually doing things that violate all of the, you know, the ideal biomechanics. Um, so there's just a whole bunch of reasons. But yeah, so we try to just call ourselves uh, context designers. And so you just, and it's, it's incredibly creative um, which didn't come naturally to me, but you just have to sit there and think, huh, I wonder what I could do so that <laughs> the horse might be more likely to have to do this particular thing. And, um, and then again, you know, uh, one movement scientist, he said, well, if you make the situation so specific that you're the horse has really, or the body has no choice but to do the one exact thing. Well, then you've kind of missed the point. Yeah. But it's that you set things up in such a way that they really, um, you're going to cause their body to try to solve a movement puzzle or solve a movement problem. And so that's where plus R, of course, is so great because we don't have to use it for microshaping, which, yeah. and I have no problem with microshaping behaviors that are not movements. Right. right. I mean, if you want the horse to do horse keeping things, oh yeah, microshape the heck out of that. <laughs> um, but just not movement because then it's really, it's not that different from, you know, using pressure and release. I mean, it is from sort of a kindness and motivation perspective, but it turns out 
that micro shaping, you know, where you just successively get the horse to move in exactly the way you want using plus R, it's still not a self-generated movement. So it's still going to have some of those same problems. Mm -hmm. So that's why the horse needs to have freedom to solve the problems in his own way. And if we find a horse where we go, oh, he's just not doing it, he's just not using his left hind, then we go, well, okay, this is a cool puzzle for us. What could we do where the horse's own brain and nervous system would say, well, you're going to have to use that hind leg. It's going to have to take weight, right? And the answer is almost always something on a sideways slope <laughs> where the horse just goes, well, okay, that wasn't that idea where I keep that one hind leg way out back there. That's not going to work right now. <laughs> and then the brain solves the problem and suddenly the horse begins to own that movement again. I, that is so interesting to me because I think in my own training and it, and it hasn't come from like a movement science place, you know, that's not how I've approached this training. And now I'm like really curious to jump in deeper and deeper. But, um, the idea of giving horses the freedom to be curious and to be creative has been really important to me. So like when I first started doing Liberty, you know, quote unquote, I was a lot more hands-on, even with positive reinforcement of, you know, thinking, what do I want to see in this? What, like, how do I shape it to get the image, you know, I'm kind of going for. And as years passed on, I got way more interested in what can the horse (laughs) show me? And Mm -hmm. that has been, you know, that is where like the true joy of horsemanship comes in for me. And this kind of training comes in for me is really stepping back and just, yeah, kind of setting up the situation um, for the game is what I think of it as like setting up a, a positive situation and then letting them show me what they want to show me and having that balance. And it's so interesting to hear it from this perspective because um, I feel like with all of this that we've been talking about, it's there's all these different ways to kind of approach these overarching like ideas and to see the different sciences and the different perspectives that really all reinforce the same concepts is amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, I mean, I think that people don't actually need to understand much of the science at all, because I think a lot of people, excuse me, like you, you know, have intuitively and sensitively and from all, and I, and I mean, intuition in the sense of you've had a great deal of experience and exposure, right? It's more, more than just a gut feeling. It's, it's, it's a result of, of you paying attention to horses for a long time and caring about them. That these things, um, you know, people have, have discovered this intuitively. And I'm kind of just here to say, yes, the science said, guess what? You actually were, you, you were right. Um, you were absolutely right. These, you know, and like, I think one of the first people who really was way ahead of the curve was Linda Tellington Jones, mm-hmm. the founder of T-Touch. Um, you know, she was trying to tell us all about proprioception and all these things a long, long time ago. Um, and that kind of brings me to the one last thing I wanted to really mention was that, you know, we don't, we started this project, it was all about motivation. And then it became all about movement science. And of course, now I realize that, well, there, there's no separation. That these, these are all one and the same. 
um, both for humans and, but especially for horses. And so we don't talk about confidence really. I mean, we, we do, but we, we look at it as it's all part of the same thing. Like we don't do, uh, we don't do desensitization. Mm -hmm. I mean, not, not that we wouldn't do it if we thought we really needed to, but everything we do is just focused on if the horse feels better in his body, if his nervous system feels safe because he is agile, he's a prey animal. So his brain still needs to know he can easily, if he needs to, do what he needs to do to yeah. escape, to you know move that way, move this way, right? If the horse feels self-confident in his body, then suddenly you see self-confidence in everything. You see the same kinds of behaviors that you saw in young horses where they just can't help themselves. They're so curious, yeah. right? And even, <laughs> even when the mare is trying to say, no, don't go over there, right? And the yeah. foal's like, I have to. <laughs> and, they, and then they'll pretend to be afraid of something, but they'll, they just can't. Because curiosity is extremely intrinsically, cognitively motivating, I mean, this this we know because it had to be baked in to, you know, to mammals because if we weren't willing to go and explore and look for new things and look for new opportunities, we wouldn't find new food, new water, new mates, new whatever, right? So yeah. this this is built in. And this all starts to come out when the horse is either in a more natural environment, but especially, and even if they're not in a more natural environment, once they start to feel better in their body again. And the mistake was to think that, well, the way to help a horse feel better in his body is to do, you know, correct dressage training, but that didn't actually help the brain feel better. Even if it did start to improve pieces of their body, um, you know, we see a lot of well-trained dressage horses that absolutely freak out at everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, they, they, these are not self-confident movers, but, um, you know, we can make really huge changes in a horse's personality. And we're not really changing his personality. We're sort of peeling off the layers that weren't never him anyway and getting back to more of who the horse is, this rewilding that you talk about, yes. right? <laughs> it's just about getting the horse back in touch with being, you know, a horse. And if you've yes. spent time like you have with wild horses and, you know, with foals in a more wild environment, you start to see all of these beautiful things, well, they're all still there. And, and, you know, if, if Dramer could return to that, who really, I think was the lowest, most shut down, non-moving, about to be euthanized horse I can imagine. And now he, it, and this is now many years later, right? And he just keeps getting more alive every day. It's, yeah. I believe any horse, <laughs> you know, can, can come back. And it's just about helping them feel better as a horse not not about what we want but yeah. what he wants and then man do we get so many awesome side effects for ourselves <laughs> when we do that so true I I so agree on all of that and it, it is amazing when I think about curiosity and I think about the wild horses I've been with it's hard to think of a more naturally curious um, mammal yeah. and, and I even see it like I think of my horses, you know, we came from a place that was amazing and, you know, we just moved and my horses are all pretty brave and all pretty curious and very much like they have a lot of personality and aliveness, as you say. Um, I love that term. Mm -hmm. 
Um, <laughs> but bringing them here to this property where they're just, the lifestyle is just something I couldn't even begin to quite give them in the same way through, you know, all right. the different things I was trying to do to enrich their entire lives already. Right. Like I, I can't even describe like the levels of natural confidence that have just come out in them where they can see something totally new and scary where even the horses that I have that are maybe just a little bit more hesitant now walk boldly into situations. Yes. It, it's amazing. And, and their personality yes. coming out like this, it's just, yes. Yeah. And it's, it's, <laughs> It's kind of a mixed blessing. I mean, like, you know, I have this big cinema camera that I use for some of the videos. And on this huge structure, you know, it's a, it's this big, very expensive, probably the most expensive thing I've ever owned. And the horses are naturally kind of like, oh, that's a weird thing. You know, I mean, they're not afraid of it, but they don't have any interest in it. Yeah. And we don't ever, ever reward our horses for like touching things unless it's a target. Right. <laughs> and we and we have very few targets. So we don't you know, we don't want the horses to be constantly going, Oh, I want to touch that. Cause I might get a treat. Right. Right. And so I just counted on the fact that they were, you know, some of them were very, they just didn't want to go near it. Well, you know, one day, right when we first started working with the stallion Yelfaxi and he was just basically like, Oh, everything is crazy. I don't want to be around anything. And then after like a few weeks, one day he just walked right up and was about to take a bite out of the lens. Of the <laughs> I'm like, and I went, wow, I, I didn't see that happening ever. And it happened like in a few weeks. And it's like, now I have to take precautions because they want to explore everything. <laughs> and like I said, these horses were not rewarded for exploring because we, that's just not what we do. But um, yeah, they, I mean, one thing I really want to say again, because I know that it can be so heartbreaking when you don't have the environment, like the one you have now and the one I have now that my horses are in, is that, you know, like on our account and almost all the videos that people have seen of our horses and the dramatic changes that the horses made and saving Dreamer's life, literally, and DL Faxi's, this was all done in very poor circumstances without any of the kinds of environmental things that, that I really want for a horse. I mean, it was, and, and it was difficult I had to do a lot of work. Like I said, we're now it's like the environment does everything. I can just basically, you know, <laughs> sit around and eat Ben and Jerry's and do nothing. And they just keep getting better, but it can happen, right? You can yeah. do it no matter what. And so my, my, um, you know, advice to anyone is just, you know, hang in there. I mean, don't, don't give up. Don't think that you can't do it. It just means that, yes, you have more responsibility. You have to do a lot of the work that nature will do, but you can absolutely do it. And that all the horses that we transformed, it all happened in terrible, tiny, cramped, bad natural situation. And it just means that, you know, keep working toward finding better and better ways to do it in the environment, you know, every way that you possibly can. Um, but don't feel bad right now if you can't, because there are things that you can do. And But it becomes really important that you do them, right? Whereas now with my horses, I can, you know, I can just kick back for quite a while and not have to do anything. <laughs> I love that. And thank you so much for saying that, because I think that's just so important to hear. And it's like something that I needed to know, even at the last place I was at and, um, and the different, you know, areas where I've lived and had horses. Um, 
I just think that's an important distinction. Um, man, thank you so much for being here. Um, I've just enjoyed this so much. And if people want to check out your work and, and, you know, learn more and see what you do, where can people find you? Um, well, the, the best place is still, you know, Instagram, um, the entrance and Instagram account. I'm actually going to be changing the name soon to something else, but it's, it will still, it will still use entrance and hashtags and everything. And then, um, the website is intrinsin.horse. Okay. So there's information on intrinsin.horse, but the Instagram account, I'm, I'm absolutely loving Instagram because I have, you know, connected with such a big and inspiring community all over the world of people like you, right? People where we're not all doing the same things, but we all share the same values about the horse. And it's just, I didn't, honestly, I didn't think I'd see this in my lifetime and it's happening. It is. Instagram has been an amazing platform for it too. I'm quite grateful. Um, cause yeah, it just seems like it has overall really good, like people really, really interested in coming together over these topics. And honestly, I, I just, I'm so thrilled, obviously, to be on your podcast, because you already know I'm, I've been a huge fan from the first episode, and you are bringing these people in, and I get to hear from, you know, people who I just am so in love with, the Willing Equine, Unbridled Goddess, people I didn't know before, like Nina Polo. I mean, I just thank you so very much for what you're doing in every way. <laughs> I, I, it's just, it's so meaningful to the greater horse world and i'm i'm happy to be my little part of it and i'm just so thrilled with what you're doing thank you thank you so so much i i it's been just like an honor to be able to connect with these people i didn't realize how how badly i was craving um connecting with people like yourself like on this deeper level that the podcast has just allowed me to actually jump in and do that and yeah, I'm just, I'm so grateful you've been on it. And I, I, I've wanted you to be on it for so long. You're like on my. Yay. Okay. Bucket list. Bucket, it, it is like bucket list. Like honestly for me, I'm like, I almost like I had to, I knew that I had to like also get the podcast like going enough to have you on. Cause I wanted to make sure I like was prepared for such a informative and like what I was expecting to be a amazing episode <laughs> so I wanted oh, to God. be like well, I'm, I, I'm sure I was just rambling for this whole long time but no it was amazing thank you <laughs> thank you so much thank you everyone for listening and uh I'll see you guys next week with a brand new episode <laughs>